At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We're glad you're here as we turn to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove families have been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. If you could turn in your Bibles to the very first book of Scripture, the book of Genesis will be in the first chapter today, first chapter of Genesis. And as you're turning there, I'm going to give you a little bit of a pop culture quiz. A couple months ago, my youngest Eliza and I were a few doors down the street at Petrozello's for a daddy-daughter dance. We were at the point in the evening when the girls were giving requests to the DJ, and of all the possibilities... What do you think was the first song they requested in the winter of 2022? I'll give you a couple hints. The album spent nine weeks at number one. The song spent five weeks as the number one single. This one will probably give it away. It's the most popular song from the latest movie from Disney Animation Studios. And only the second Disney song to ever make it to number one. The first song that made it to number one was A Whole New World by Aladdin. So... First time since that point in time that Disney made a song that made it to number one. So yes, I looked up all those fun facts this week. Don't judge me for it. But everybody got it? What's the song? We don't talk about Bruno from Encanto, or as my nine-year-old likes to say, Encanto. Here's what I don't get. The song is actually about a dysfunctional family member with a borderline mental illness who's been blacklisted and abandoned by his own mother and siblings. It sounds super joyful and fun, but then when you read the lyrics, it's full of this depravity. He never did anything wrong. They just don't know what to do with him. So they reject him and pretend like he doesn't exist. He literally lives in the walls. The movie doesn't have a traditional villain. There's no dragon or monster or witch to conquer. The conflict is that the family was meant to be a blessing, but the family is broken. And maybe that's part of the movie's popularity because we can all relate. We can all relate to the depravity that hits each and every one of our families. And everybody has some crazies in their family too. And if you're not sure who that is in your family, if you look at your family and say, there's nobody in ours, we're all pretty normal. That means that you're the crazy one. (laughs) That's all that means. Everybody has a measure of dysfunction in their family. And sometimes that dysfunction goes on for not just days or weeks, but years and generations. Family is a blessing, but when family is fractured, it seems easier just to say what this series is all about. Why bother? It's easier to cover up the issue, to run from the issue, to ignore the issue, than to learn from the issue, overcome the issue, and bring the redemption of the gospel to the issue. One Christian author put it this way, long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. Because what's common in our culture is to say, you know what, you're no longer bringing me the fulfillment of what I feel like I deserve, what I feel like I need. You're not giving me what I thought was part of this deal. So instead of working that out with you, I'm gonna bail, I gotta go. I'll find that in another relationship, in another surrogate family, in another place in society. 
And yet the process of sanctification, of becoming more and more like Jesus, is that when those issues arise, we stay and grow through the process. God wants to bring in this series breakthrough where there's been brokenness. I know he does over this next couple months. He wants to bring healing where there's been hurt. And like so many other issues in our lives, the real question for all of us is, will we walk out the way of Christ or walk away with the world? For the next seven weeks, we'll journey through some of the stories of families from this very first book of the canon, Genesis, stories of the first family in humanity, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and our first parents of the faith, Abraham and Sarah, and Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Now, underneath all these issues is a more basic, more fundamental Christian value that needs to shape every relationship and interaction that we have with one another. And we find it in this very first chapter. If we could truly grasp the reality of this truth, then it would revolutionize the way that we treat one another. Here it is, that God designed humanity for dignity. That God has designed every single human being with God-given dignity. Maybe people in your life have tried to strip that away from you. Maybe somebody in your life has tried to say, man, you don't have the value of someone else. You are not worth what you think you're worth. You are not as good as others might claim to be. In fact, you're less than. People try to strip dignity from others all the time, and they do, and they have, and they will. And yet when we come here, you, along with every other single human being on this earth, have been created, not with man or woman-given dignity, not from another human being, but God-given dignity, meaning it cannot be taken away. That regardless of what the world might say about you or about us as a church family or about our faith or whatever it might be, that every single human being is equally given something by God that no other human being could strip. So how does the creation story establish human dignity? That's the question we want to tackle this morning. How does the Christian story of creation establish human dignity? We'll find three answers. Here's the first, that God decrees human dominion. We find our dignity in our created identity. Now your identity as a human being is shaped by your relationship with the rest of creation. We, we don't enter the story in chapter 1 until verse 26, and that's intentional because the Christian story, it begins and it ends with God. God didn't need the Bible written to validate who he is. The Bible was written for us. It was written so that we might understand who God is, who we are, and how we're designed to experience relationship with him, with one another, with the world for our good and his glory. When you understand the primary questions then of Genesis 1 and what it's really trying to answer, you won't impose upon this beautiful chapter of scripture questions that it wasn't primarily attempting to answer. And questions that might have to do with modern concerns or every scientific theory that we can think of. If anything, the Genesis account in this first three chapters specifically, but here in chapter one, is a counter story to the ancient Near Eastern creation myths of Egypt and Babylon and Assyria. 
So Moses wrote it to make it clear to his people and to the world that God is not one God amongst many gods that are all fighting over dominion and power. And as they fight for that dominion and power, they had this epic clash that created the universe. That's no, not at all the truth of what he writes here for us. The biblical account is that God exists and he's so powerful that when he speaks, it is so. It is said that by divine fiat, the word means by God's decree, by God's command, by God's sanction, the universe is brought into existence, into order. Only through his speaking does it flourish. Genesis 1 then claims to be a truth-telling counterstory of an all-powerful, eternal God who speaks, it happens, and he rules and reigns over all that he has made. And if you're familiar with it, it's broken down into days. The first three days have to do with God forming the universe and the earth. Days four through six have to do with filling the earth. So our verse, we'll get there soon, is verse 26. And that's on day six, as the Lord fills the land, the ground with creatures. We'll back up and look at verse 24 to start. It says, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So he created livestock. Thank you, God, for the cow and for steak and ice cream. And thank God for the pig and for honey-baked ham and especially bacon. Grateful, we're all grateful. And if you're not grateful, you're missing out. Most of us don't thank God for the creeping things. They're all part of the ecosystem. I'm sure there's a purpose. I'm sure there's some good things that they bring, but most of us aren't really thrilled about that. But our kids thank God for all the beasts, for the lions and the tigers and the bears that they love to see at the zoo. But right at the moment, we would expect the same words that came after the first five days, which are, and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day, it turns. We get a turn. The day isn't done. Then verse 26 Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Man referring to all of humanity. We could spend all day here, but just two things I'd like you to notice in the text. First says, God God says, let us. It changes in the language. It's the first glimpse we see of Trinitarian revelation, that God is one essence existing in three divine persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Trinity then helps us see that eternal loving relationship is part of who God is. And it's no accident that community is in mind when humanity is created because he is a divine unity in community full of love. We being image bearers will then also be made for family, for community. That's how we've been created for long-term interpersonal loving community that is a unique way, a distinct way from every other part of creation. The number one metaphor used to describe the church is family. God is described as our father. We are described as his children. We are called brothers and sisters in Christ. We are separated from God's family through our rebellion and sin, but we are adopted back into his family through the birth and the resurrection or the the death and the resurrection of his son. The human story begins with the family dwelling with God and the Bible ends with the family dwelling with God. The church is described as the bride of Jesus, the son of God. 
And this bride, this church, she is blemished and broken, but she is cleansed through his loving sacrifice. So we are now blood relatives through the cross. Community. Then God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Here's the other thing I'd like you to see here. Image describes a statue that stood as a representation for ancient Near Eastern gods. But God is not creating stone idols to represent himself. We are created to bear his image. It is called the Imago Dei. In the image of God we're made to be representatives of his likeness. And here's why this is so shocking. In the ancient world, only kings were considered representatives of the gods. In Egyptian and Mesopotamian, Middle Eastern cultures, people saw kings as the image of God. So if you were a king or oftentimes maybe even a dignitary, they would worship you as a god. Think of the pharaoh. Think of the sun god. But if you weren't a king, this was humanity's view of the rest of our species. If you weren't a king, if you were a mason working on a sphinx or a canal digger working on a ziggurat or a chef or a woman or a slave or a foreigner, then you were often seen as nothing. Nothing valuable, nothing special, nothing extraordinary, no dignity. I hope you see the difference here between the Christian story and the others. In the Christian story, it says here, everyone is an image bearer of God. Everyone, the king, the peasant, the man, the woman, the child, the Jew, the Gentile. Moses wrote this and it even included the people who had oppressed his own people. He's writing this after the Israelites have now come out of Egypt. He's reflecting upon that time as he writes these first five books of the Bible. And as he reflects back, even those Egyptians who were their enemies, every single soul is created in the Imago Dei. Everyone, no distinction, no difference, all the same, all image bears. Now, regardless of what you might have heard because this is what our culture likes to say about the Bible. Maybe you've heard that the Bible is an archaic, abusive, misogynistic, xenophobic text, especially the Old Testament. But let's remember, 3,500 years ago, Moses said, Moses said 3,500 years ago that everyone, every single human being has been given the exact same representative dignity and royal significance of God himself. And we represent him by also reigning over parts of God's creation. Look at verse 26, the back half. It says, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we display the reign of God as we reign over what he has entrusted to us. Part of our dignity is our dominion. This is why when Jonah wants to see God wipe out the entire city in Nineveh, he's so angry with their disobedience. He's so, uh, he, he's so confronted with the reality that these Ninevites might actually be the people that God uses to bring destruction to his own people. So he simply sits back and waits for the fireworks show. And God steps in in that last chapter and he says this. He says, should I not pity Nineveh? That great, great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Jonah cared more in the story about a plant keeping his head in the shade than he did about the herds and the human beings. And that was the point. 
That's what God is bringing out here, even in the first chapter. God is saying after he created the expanses, you could travel a hundred times the speed of light past billions of yellow-orange stars. You could travel to the Sagittarius A star that forms the black hole at the center of our galaxy and go right to the point where light is no longer even present because it can't escape gravity. You could bounce between some of the newest and brightest stars among all the gas and the dust. You could observe the birth of a star as it bursts forth out of a dusty cocoon. But God is saying here, nothing could ever equal the birth and wonder of a human being. Only that child is made in the Imago Dei. Unlike all of the rest of creation, there was a time when the person was not But now as a created soul, the person is eternal. He or she will exist forever. Consider this, friends. When all the stars you could ever travel to fade away and burn out, that soul will still live. Human dignity. Now this is why we must care for human life at every stage. At every stage of the game, we must care for human life. Why? Because from day one in the womb to the day the body is laid to rest, every stage in between, the body, the mind, the soul have dignity. We must be people of action. We must be people who have compassion. We must let God's word guide our conviction, not the culture. We must hold fast to our ethics, but never stop demonstrating love and grace. First Peter chapter three puts it this way, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. The point is we must look at each human being as royalty as worthy of immutable respect, regardless of who they are, how they vote, or any physical identity marker they do or do not have. And all of this includes the family members in your house. In fact, just turn to the person right next to you right now, look in their eyes and say, I see the Imago Dei. Just turn to them and say, I see the Imago Dei in you. I see the image of God in you. You are looking at the image, the representation of the God of the universe as you look into them. And I just noticed which marriages are doing well (laughs) and which ones might need a little bit more time. Do we recognize when we see another human being, enemy or not, what we are actually beholding? the value that is there. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in an article called The Weight of Glory. He said, speaking of those who will either be glorified in Christ or receive eternal judgment and be separated from God in hell, he said, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as, uh, such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. 
Do we recognize the dignity in all of humanity? How does the Christian story of creation establish our dignity? By giving us dominion, sharing with us the imago Dei, helping us understand the image of God that we've been made within. Also, God designs human distinction. Our distinction gives us dignity. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this is the first poem in the Bible. It's three lines. The first two are a repetitive structure to reinforce what we've just talked about, the Imago Dei. But the third speaks of distinction. Moses has already established that God's design sets every man, every woman, every child on equal ground. Now God says that within that shared dignity, there is also a God-created difference. Now, friends, when we press in on these verses, I know this is sensitive in our culture. So we hold on to our ethics, we hold on to our truth, but we hold them with gentleness and respect. So as we come to this text, we have to take it seriously, understanding the claims of the biblical text, but we hold on to it in such a way where we still honor and love every person made in the Imago Dei. The point is that there is distinction in our sex or gender. God created them, plural, male and female, distinct. He created them. So let me be clear about what the Bible is claiming. Human sex and gender are assigned by God for every individual. God separated the human species into two equal yet distinct genders, male and female. Gender is not a construct of repressive humanity. It is a God-given design for the human race. There's a lot of confusion and noise and efforts to deny the design of God's created order today. Because who we are is by God's design. That design should not be altered, changed, or diminished. Our church's statement of faith on human sexuality is so helpful. It's helpful language for us in understanding the consistent biblical teaching on human gender and sexuality. And yet as we understand this, we demonstrate it through a posture like Jesus, caring for every soul, even if there's a difference of opinion as we hold on to the truth of God's word. Our statement reads this, God created human beings, male and female. Therefore, we hold the distinction between the two sexes to be sacred because it's God's design, his plan, his way. We believe that God disapproves of and forbids any attempt to change the appearance or identity of one's biological sex by medical, surgical, non-binary acts, conduct, or by any other means. Friends, it should break our hearts. It breaks my heart for people, people made in the Imago Dei and the image of God who are deeply struggling to connect what's in their heads with the realities of their bodies. We must have compassion for one another in this struggle. This struggle is very much a part of a broader secular culture because our secular culture has embraced a new flavor of what's called Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the rejection of the physical. It embraces knowledge, a secret knowledge that is determined by you. It's individualistic. 
It makes it pluralistic. We all have our own secret knowledge. That means that enlightenment and truth can be found inside yourself, in the individual. So what's true for you is how you will achieve the highest level of life. So if you determine that the knowledge you have received is not compatible with your body, then you reject the body. See how this works? Who I am and the truth that I have is all here. And as I discover it through self-discovery, through self-fulfillment, if it's inconsistent with the physical, then I'll reject the physical. That's what Gnosticism does. It elevates the immaterial and it discards the physical. And instead of turning our eyes away from the discussion, we should engage the discussion with love and compassion and clarity. Why? Because the Christian story actually gives us an answer. It places deep value on both the physical and the immaterial brought together in creation by God's design under his sovereign control. Now, some say this perspective is narrow, cruel, unloving, bigoted, we may be accused of degrading others, but any attempt to elevate human dignity apart from God's design only ends up lifting up some and denigrating others. Sharon James in her book, Gender Ideology, What Christians Need to Know, this is her observation. After the creation of man and woman, God declared that his creation was very good. But rejecting the idea of our creator God means that we reject his creation as a given to be respected and that we demand the right to deconstruct and reconstruct it as we please to suit ourselves. What does all this mean? It means all men and all women have equal dignity and value. It means we all lift up the distinctive value of men and women. It means we renounce all patriarchal schemes that elevate men and subjugate women underneath every man. It means we renounce radical feminism that seeks to overthrow every aspect or any aspect of our society, including the church, that would have male leadership. It means we celebrate each other and we protect each other as men, women, and human beings. We protect one another. When we see any human being, we protect them. How are we doing? I was reminded of this story in such a powerful way. A few weeks ago, I was having dinner at Pastor Don and Sue Anderson's home, and I was able to be there with my wife, Katie, and a few from our team, and we heard the story of a man named Ramesh. Ramesh is part of a ministry called Our Daughters International. It fights against human trafficking in Nepal. And it's a dark story. It's a heavy story, but it's so relevant because it gives us the heart of the Christian to see value in every human being. Ramesh when he was a young boy, became ill. His parents had been divorced. His mom had left the home when he was small. And when he became ill, his dad took him outside of the Hindu temple and left him there to die. No dignity. His grandparents came and found him, took him to a hospital a few hours away. And in that hospital, he describes it now as a grandfather that that was the first time in his life he remembers feeling the love and compassion of another human being. When he was released from the hospital, he returned home but knew there was no home for him really there, so he left in search of his mother, went to one of the big cities of Nepal. 
He knew the apartment complex or had been told the apartment complex where she would be. But as he traveled there, when you see a homeless teenager in, in this part of the world, in that particular context, at that particular time, they weren't given dignity. Instead, he was mistreated, abused, and mocked. Along the way, and as he had a hard time finding her, he just contemplated whether or not he should end his life. On his way away from that apartment complex, he did not find her there. He actually ran into her on the road as she was returning home. She embraced him, asked for forgiveness, and said, I, I've come to know a man named Jesus Christ who's changed my life. She'd become a Christian and she shared the gospel with him and he became a Christian. So he moves in with his mom and what they started to do as Christian men and women is go to the hospital to care for people who were not cared for. And there was one particular woman, this was in the early 90s, who was brought into Nepal. She was in the hospital. No one would care for her because she was the first HIV patient in the country. They would not feed her. They would not care for her. She was abused. She was neglected. She was left to literally die, nothing but bones and skin. And as he shared it, he wept. She had been passed around in India through the trafficking industry, 30 to 40 people a day. She contracted HIV. They saw her of no use, no dignity, no value, threw her on the street. She returned home in the hospital, no dignity, no value, no use, die. Ramesh and his mother took her home to their apartment, cared for her. And as she was dying, she said, her last words Ramesh said was, I had a baby in one of the brothels. I call her Pinky which is more of a nickname for a young girl, would you go find her and save her? And then she died. He then works with authorities and crosses the, the country border, goes into India, into that section of the brothels. He never finds Pinky, but he finds 10 or 12 women who had been trafficked, who were all from Nepal. He liberates all of them, brings them back home, and he's been liberating women in Nepal ever since for over 30 years. When you hear the stories of the women, now there's women who are serving with him, working on the border. They've counseled tens of thousands of women. They've saved thousands of women from the trafficking industry. They're just trying to save pinkies. Why? Because they see that every human being has value. Every human being made in the image of God. Christians see dignity in everyone. The woman dying of HIV, the homeless teenage boy, the unnamed child born in a brothel. Everyone is the same. This is what we understand as as Christians, even in the early church, when they spent their money, do you know what one of the first purchases the church would make? It was a large expenditure. In the empire of Rome, they would buy a cemetery. Why? Because they were the people in all of the empire that wouldn't just bury their own dead, but other people's dead too, because they cared about humanity. Because the body and the soul have value. How does the Christian story of creation establish dignity? It gives us dominion. It talks about our distinctives. And finally and briefly, God directs human duty. Look at verses 28 through 31. It goes on to saying, God blessed them. 
the man and the woman, Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. No other part of creation receives his love and affection like this. He blessed them. He blesses us. He blesses humanity with vocation, with industry, with work. This is called the cultural mandate. Simply put, humanity is to create and cultivate. To create, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth. To cultivate, to subdue it and have dominion over every living thing that moves. This is the basis for exploration, for discovery, for science, for conservation, for technology, for arts and literature and uh, music and history and rhetoric. And we should care about the earth even more so than our secular neighbors. And again, the emphasis upon community and family. So the question becomes, how have we done with all these mandates? Have we done with God's design? When you look over the chronology of human history, we could all say, not very well. We have not represented God's image in us well. We have brought death and are dead in our trespasses and sins, both physically and spiritually. So God did something for us. Once again, he sent another representative for himself to us. And here's where we'll close this morning. His messenger was God wrapped in flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He came as the image of the invisible God, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Where we failed to display the image of God in our dominion, Jesus was declared in power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. When, where we distorted and denied the distinctions God created in making us male and female, Jesus gives dignity to both by affirming their distinctiveness. He went against culture and honored and elevated women in all that he did. He honored God's design for human sexuality, even as a single man who never married. Where we neglected the duty God gave to create and cultivate human flourishing, Jesus came and died to rescue fallen humans from the destructive lies and evil of Satan, sin, and death. The point is that Jesus brought back dignity. He brought dignity back to us again by dying in our place and triumphing over everything that would oppose God's rule and God's reign. And through faith, that dignity is restored. And through faith, he says, now I want you to be light. Now I want you to be truth. Now I want you to bring that salvation. Now I want you to bring that hope. Now you need to bring that message to this world that's desperate for it. A vocation, a purpose. And in many ways, it's so simple. We preached about this a few months ago in Luke chapter 7 when we see the story of the Pharisee Simon and the woman of the city. A no-name Somebody without who had been stripped of her dignity by the society, but that doesn't mean it was gone from God's sight. So what did Jesus say to her? The same thing he asks of us. He, he says, do you see this woman? 
Do we see the dignity of God in the people around us? How would this revolutionize the world? Let's just go right home for a second. When you look at one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, even if you're with people who are not of faith, even if within your home you're staring into the eyes of a child, of a spouse, whoever it might be, it starts right there. Are you treating that person with the dignity of God? In your relationships, in your interactions, in your actions, there's so many ways we can do this as a church, partnering with crisis pregnancy centers and special needs ministries and senior ministries and a hundred other ways that we try to do this through our church family around the globe, through partners like Ramesh. The point is we've been given the spirit of Jesus so that we might live to be more like him and hold on to the value of every human being that he was willing to sacrifice and die for. He calls us to do the same. Friends, isn't this what the world needs? Just consider that. Friends, isn't this what your family needs? This is what we've been tasked to do with, and it's such a beautiful message of design that we can look at one another and say, thank you, God, for seeing us, every single one of us. Thank you, God, for restoring our dignity when everybody else tries to strip it away. And thank you, God, for the mission to try to respect, honor, and protect that dignity in everyone else in this world. Father God, thank you for this day and for your word. Father, as we come to this creation story, there's so much to unpack and there's so much beauty and power there. We thank you. Father, that we have been all given dominion and dignity as image bearers of you. And that makes every human life from day one to the last day they live, it gives it intrinsic, eternal value. Father, thank you that none of us need to question whether or not we have value at all because you've bestowed it upon us. You've given it to us. And Father, when we look at the depravity around us, all the darkness, all the confusion, all the lies, Father, help us to embrace what you have done for us in Jesus, the mission that you've given us through Jesus, that when we walk out of this place today, we are protectors of human life. We celebrate human life. We go in search of souls that need to know that they're eternal. Souls that need that relationship with you eternally. We want to live on mission like Jesus did. So help us to be more like him, the way we act, the way we love, the way we speak, the way we serve, the way we live. Help us to be like your son. So even as we respond, I pray that we would respond in this song lifting it up as a prayer, saying, Jesus, I don't have, I don't feel like I have much to offer, but when I walk out of this place today, I'm just asking you, I'm pleading with you, make me more like you. Give me your heart. Give me your heart for the lost, for the broken, for the downtrodden, for everyone, starting in my own home. May you be honored and glorified so that when the world sees us loving one another, caring for one another, they will see Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.